0: Krishna, welcome everybody. Um, this is Mark and Dan? <laughs> so we'll, we'll begin now. Um, I'd like to thank everyone who, who was uh, participating. So, how are we going to proceed? Um, is Krishna Shakti there? Krishna Shakti is not there? No, she's here. I don't see her. Anyway, so um, without further ado, thank you all for attending. And um, we're going to do three initiations here. And so following our tradition, I will uh, say a few words on the... uh, Oh, there's Bjorn. Uh, how do you pronounce your name? April Sun? Bjorn. Bjorn. Yeah, I heard about it. Yeah, we talked one time. We so did. Following, uh, following our tradition, I'll explain a bit about what we're actually doing here. Um, the, uh, the process of initiation is, uh, you could say, uh, it is a type of activity which we find throughout human culture, throughout history. And that is uh, the very notion of civilization uh, is that as as human beings... Uh Sorry, I was muted. Uh, I'm in a hotel right now in the Chapel Hill area, and the internet connection just sort of ended, and I had to go back to the hotel website and reestablish it. So I was saying that um, as human beings, um, we are more, we in a sense, you could say we are animals, mammals. You know, we, we have these physical bodies. We, you know, comply with the, the basic requirements or definitions of an animal. But at the same time, uh, there's always been an understanding in among civilized people that somehow we are more than animals. We have certain abilities uh, beyond what one finds in animals. Of course, you could say that one could argue that we are just sophisticated animals or that uh, we have larger brains, et cetera. But it goes beyond that. If we were merely talking about, let's say, abilities, abilities to compute or to uh, satisfy our basic needs by hunting or by reproducing or uh, whatever, that we are simply I'm hearing an echo there. That we are simply sophisticated animals. But the the extra dimension to human life, which cannot simply be analyzed as a more advanced or sophisticated form of animal life, is our metaphysical dimension or ethical dimension. In other words, as human beings... We are capable of understanding that certain things should be done because they are morally correct or certain things should not be done because they are morally incorrect. Further, uh, we have a unique type of self-awareness. We can actually analyze ourselves and try to understand what we are. We can ask questions that animals presumably do not, Pose to themselves. For example, uh, am I merely a physical body? Or uh, am I somehow or other a conscious being beyond mm. that? Um, or are we somehow conscious beings simply inhabiting a body? So so this whole area of uh, contemplation or uh, meditation, you could call metaphysics. In other words, we have no evidence whatsoever that animals have a serious interest in metaphysical things. Metaphysical things would be, for example, ethical judgments. What is morally right and wrong? Not merely what is efficacious, like, you know, should I kill this other animal and eat it? Or should I uh, engage in sex with with another animal of my herd? Uh, Someone needs to turn off their microphone. Judy Fox, they need to mute yourself. Uh, Someone still needs to mute their microphone. Mom, mom, mute your microphone. Mom, can you hear me? If not, whichever, you can add me as a co-host and I can mute whoever is. So well, can you do that, Nandalila, Okay. So uh, anyway, not to belabor this point, apart from all of our physical needs and activities, we have metaphysical considerations, ethical considerations, uh considerations of personal identity, and the notion that our real identity is not merely physical, it's actually beyond the physical. Uh, notions of of some type of deity, some type of god. The idea that uh beyond the physical universe, or above or somehow, or within it, there is a uh some supreme power. We find, interestingly, if you study uh, polytheistic societies, such as we can think of the uh, Greco-Roman civilization with their different you know, Greek and Roman deities, actually, I mean, in many parts of the world, whether we're talking about East Asia or uh, Polynesia, in many parts of the world, you find polytheistic societies. What's interesting is that in, 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 uh, when we study these polytheistic societies, it's very common that they even understand that these, this pantheon, this group of deities is not the supreme power, that actually there's some power beyond Zeus, beyond Jupiter and so on. So the notion that there is somehow some a supreme being, a supreme being that explains all other beings, uh, that is something that, that, that's the kind of, You could say speculation or contemplation. I'm going to put a little more light in, which we only find uh, among human beings. So because of all these abilities, these uh, concerns, ethical, uh, metaphysical, theistic, uh, spiritual, and so on, uh, I'm just going to reduce the size of my picture because I really don't like to look at big pictures of myself, especially at the age of this body. So... um, So there is something very special about human life. And so what do we do with that? Uh, What we find throughout human history is that there have been great collective efforts to um, somehow or other understand, to uh, deploy, to take advantage of these extraordinary abilities we have. In fact, one example of a collective effort to deal with uh, these special powers is society. Because after all, we can imagine a world in which you know, it's every man or woman for themselves. Everyone just goes and hunts or gathers or tries to personally kill their own enemies. To the very fact that we... Um, now, the electricity went out here, it looks like. Uh, this is... This is quite a day. So um, the very fact that we form societies, that societies have laws, and uh, and those laws are basically ethical. They're metaphysical. For example, imagine you live in a little village or a little town, and they decide to put a stop sign on Main Street. There's, or... or Even a traffic light. There's never been a traffic light. People are proud. There are no traffic lights in our town. Now, when you put a traffic light up, that's a metaphysical judgment because the justification will be that it gives us greater security. But in putting up the traffic light, you have less freedom because instead of just driving your car wherever you want, you have to stop. So your freedom is reduced but presumably your security is increased. So placing value on freedom, placing value on security, uh, those are metaphysical judgments. So society, the idea that we have police, that we have governments, that people cannot rape their neighbors, they cannot steal, they cannot break in, they cannot, you can't kill people. These are all moral judgments. And, you could say, like animals, that we simply do these things uh, by instinct, but it's actually more than that. Um, we we form social contracts and so on. So, how does this relate to the spirit, the process of spiritual initiation? Because it's another type of social contract, just like we we we. For example, you could go and live on a mountaintop somewhere deep in the forest. And you could do whatever you want. I mean, you could wear clothes or not wear clothes. You could, you know, you could, you know, all the world, you know, all your, you know, the whole mountain would be your bathroom. So the point is when people choose to live in cities, when people choose to live in towns, they are consciously entering into a social contract because they think the benefits outweigh the uh, the liabilities that my my freedom is is reduced by living in society but but my benefits are increased and i will have a better life by living in society and so that's a type of social contract approach to society or civilization when someone decides to be initiated um it's another type of social contract. They, they want to participate in a spiritual community. They agree to follow certain principles. You could say that whenever you agree to follow a principle, your freedom is reduced. But then again, there are situations where uh, apparently our freedom is reduced, but we feel we are getting great benefits that make it very much in our rational self-interest to accept those rules. For example, uh, I went to a doctor several days ago. That's obviously very exciting news. I know you're all very happy to be informed of that. Anyway, so I went to the doctor, and um, the doctor successfully treated a certain uh, medical issue I had, and the doctor recommended certain behavior, like you know, take this little pill once a day, or um, you know, try to avoid this or that. And so I accepted those restrictions on my freedom because the benefits overwhelmingly justified what I consider to be relatively trivial, trivial limitations on my freedom. And so this type of cost benefit analysis is really what happens when a person decides to be spiritually initiated, to make vows, to agree to certain principles. Uh, hopefully, it's not done merely out of sentiment or fanaticism, but at least in the way I uh, try to do what I do, uh, I encourage people to make a rational decision based on the actual benefits they're receiving, significant benefits, uh, what the cost of those benefits is, what kinds of principles they follow in their spiritual practice. And then they conclude, if they do, that it is very much in my self-interest to to adopt these procedures, just like I do with a good doctor or a good lawyer. Fortunately, I don't have to deal with lawyers very much. I mean, every one of my family is a lawyer, but I personally have not had to deal with lawyers very much. So so in the case of spiritual initiation, you could say, uh, one has the the chance to receive what we would claim are the, uh, are the greatest possible benefits. Are the greatest possible benefits. Because if you think about it, uh, health alone is not sufficient. I mean, imagine someone who was very healthy physically, but unconscious. I mean, there are cases where uh, someone's physical body is in perfect health, but they can be in a type of vegetative state, they can be in a coma where they really have no conscious life, they make no decisions, they do not enjoy anything or, or they enjoy no friendships, even though the physical body is working. So uh, generally, we, we accept that what makes life meaningful is not merely to have a healthy physical body, but to be mentally healthy to have a vibrant, uh, a very enriching life of the mind. And it's precisely this development of consciousness, which is at the heart of spiritual practice. I'm explaining all these things because from my point of view, uh, practicing spiritual life does not mean that you become sort of like an alien creature or a different kind of person. I see it rather as the just consistently pursuing one's rational self-interest wherever it leads. I know that's why I took up my own spiritual practice. Uh, when I began my practice, I was not lonely or starving or anything like that. I, but I was pursuing, it was very important to me to get a clear understanding of the most important things in life. Such as, who am I? What is God? What is the purpose of my life? And what is the greatest good that I can achieve for myself and others? So uh, in, in offering people Krishna consciousness, I'm happy to say we are not experimenting on them. We are not, it's not like I'm, you know, some kind of love guru. That was actually a very funny movie. But anyway, you know, a guru who, um, you know, I think I've seen the light or something and now I'm going to experiment on you or, or try out my theories on other people. Uh, the, this bhakti yoga, this spiritual process has actually been practiced with, with outstanding results. Uh, It's been practiced by hundreds of millions of people for many thousands of years. And I would argue also that it not only has brought extraordinary personal benefit uh, to actually hundreds of millions of people, especially in South Asia, but also it served as the basis for a highly civilized society. So again, it's not an esoteric thing that someone cooked up and we're trying to sell it to other people. We, um, we have a document, a book, written by a gentleman named Megasthenes, who was a Greek ambassador to India uh, approximately 2,300 years ago, over 2,000 years ago. And he wrote a book called Indica, which in Greek meant about India. And in this book, he describes a very advanced civilization, advanced ethically in the sense that there is, he said that you can walk for hundreds and hundreds of miles and never really have to worry about your personal safety, uh, about anyone robbing you or attacking you. There are uh, efficient hospitals for human beings and for animals, animal hospitals, Uh a significant segment of the population is vegetarian. They believe in animal rights. It said that if a foreigner uh, is in the country, they receive special protection. If a foreigner, someone from another country, dies, this is India, in India, uh, the government immediately steps in to protect that person's assets to make sure that no one cheats the family out of their inheritance. So as In in many ways, it was a very civilized society, ethical, animal rights, in in so many ways. And it was actually based on this culture. It it, it was based on uh, these principles of yoga. Yoga comes from this culture. So this is a civilization. It's by adopting this practice of bhakti yoga, one is not merely uh, adopting a, a, a personal or private spiritual practice, which is also there. I mean, everyone has their own personal intimate experience and their own private practice. But it's also one is joining an extremely distinguished civilization. A civilization which is not sectarian. A civilization which did not fight religious wars. It did not kill people for having the wrong religion or the wrong beliefs. Uh, a civilization which respected human rights. For example, uh, we have an ancient book called Mahavarata, which I'm working on now, Great Bharata. Bharata is the ancient name of South Asia. And uh, what we find is that thousands of years ago, uh, at a time when it was unimaginable in other parts of the world, people had freedom of speech. You could go out into the middle of your town and criticize the government. You could say the king's a fool. And it wasn't like off with your head. People did that. People did criticize the government and because they they had a right to do so. And the typical response of a king, if he found out the people were criticizing him, was not a purge to kill them, but just the opposite. The king would talk to his ministers and say we'd better get our act together before they throw us out. So it was constitutional monarchy. It was not, you know, Louis XIV, l'etat moi. It was not, it was not tyranny. It was a constitutional monarchy in which the king had to follow the law. And the word for law was dharma. By the way, if you've heard that word dharma, that's also the common Sanskrit word for law. So um, we are in in presenting Krishna consciousness. We are actually j- inviting people to take up a, a powerful, private spiritual practice, which has been effective uh, beyond recorded time. I mean, I mean, forever. It's it's been effective, and to join this great non sectarian, non fanatical uh, spiritual civilization, which is focused on helping souls to become self-realized and God-realized. So that's what we're doing. That's actually what we're doing. Um, it's, it's based on the concept that, um, that there can be, or there is, a spiritual science. Uh, For various historical reasons, I I could go on for hours, which we don't have, explaining all the historical factors that led to sort of a bifurcation of society into uh, let's say material science and uh, religion with the idea that science is the objective dimension of life and things like religion are the subjective dimension of life. I will just say that this belief is philosophically can be reduced philosophically to absurdity, which, I mean, I won't do it right now. I've done it in a lot of different programs. And also, um, it has has a historical background. Why people began to think that way, because if you look at older culture, uh, no one thought that way. Even during the Renaissance, the greatest scientists were all religious people. In fact their religion led to the founding of science in the west and led to many scientific discoveries such as the fact that the earth goes around the sun you know good old copernicus the discovery that the earth goes around the sun copernicus was directly inspired by his religious beliefs he was actually a platonist and plato always talks about the sun as a symbol of god And so he reasoned that, well, if the sun represents God, because he took his Plato seriously, then wouldn't it be more reasonable that the human earth goes around the divine sun? Anyway, I mean, we could, we could talk all day and night about the innumerable scientific discoveries that were inspired by spiritual beliefs. But in any case, um, where the world is heading right now at least in terms of the intellectual if you if you monitor contemporary intellectual history for various reasons historical reasons we are seeing a re a gradual reunification of the sciences both spiritual and material and a, a physical and metaphysical to use aristotle's language so what we are presenting here is a spiritual science And that science is verified by a practitioner, both individually and socially, individually by measuring and monitoring one's own powerful spiritual progress if one takes the process seriously, progress toward uh, seeing all living beings as souls. We want equality. Uh, The way to get equality is not the balkanizing of society as, as some People believe who, who who believe they're establishing social justice by emphasizing everyone's bodily identify identity, emphasizing that you know everyone is their body, because when you do that, uh, inevitably, if if you know anything about history, that can only lead to conflict, uh, both uh, social and more violent. Uh, so the real way to establish unity is to simply understand that we are all the same because we are all eternal spiritual beings. And therefore we can rise above our bodily identities and see each other as divine sparks of God so that it becomes irrelevant to us what kind of body someone has. Because even, for example, to avoid all the hot button issues of our society. Um, Imagine a society in which everyone is of the same race, whatever that race is. Imagine a society where everyone is the same race, but you still get all kinds of discrimination, prejudice, rich people look down upon and exploit poor people, more educated people, ridicule less educated people. There's all kinds of exploitation. If you think that simply by establishing the equality of different racial or ethnic or whatever groups uh, that will establish peace, you really need to read a bit more history. Because what history shows is that most of the violence, most of the oppression, most of the discrimination and exploitation in world history happened between people of the same race. It's just like people think that if we make the world environmentally sound, we'll automatically have peace. Well, guess what? Before the industrial revolution, Earth was basically an organic planet. Before the industrial revolution, and if you study the organic Earth, what you find is there was a staggering unimaginable unimaginable amount of brutality, cruelty, suffering, exploitation on the organic earth. So the idea that social justice or the idea that natural living, which are very good, they're very positive things, but the idea that this alone will take us where we want to go is simply um. It's an illusion. In fact, I remember many years ago uh, when I was living in Florida, I was interviewed by a scholar from the University of Wisconsin who was engaged in a United Nations project to try to understand historically uh, what really inspired people in history to do the right thing, to act ethically, to, to take care of the earth and not destroy it, to help each other, not destroy each other. And they found that the most significant indicator, the most significant catalyst or cause of this, when things were working well, was a sincere spiritual worldview. And of course, religion, as we know, has been exploited for the most evil ends. We know that, we, you know, if we know history. However, good religion, not bad religion, was the single most powerful force in the world uh, for morality, for peace, for cooperation. And this is just history. This is just history. So uh, if we don't know history, we are uh, splashing around in pretty shallow water. Anyway, so Krishna consciousness is... um, we're trying to address all these things. It's, it's, it's really a, a great movement when it's done right, which it sometimes is. And so by adopting uh, this bhakti yoga practice, it's individual prog- progress, obviously individual enlightenment, and also uh, a very sin- a sincere attempt to really help the world, help other people to establish justice, equality, but by doing it you know, seriously, by helping people to understand that we are all equal because um, because we're all spiritual beings in bodies, and we have to respect each other, honor each other, take care of each other, and, uh, and not destroy the only planet we've got right now. So, anyway, thank you very much. Uh, and so, uh, if there are any questions, uh, please, I'll you know, try my best to answer them. Any questions? Aloha Maharaj. I have a a, a, a quick question. Yes. This is Raghunath from Hawaii. Ragunath. Uh, yeah, though. I'm, I'm an old, uh, old that's friends that's with right. Vincent Lim. Tell them that I loved this class. And that's my Mata. She says she loves your class. Uh, you. I was just wondering if uh, if you would just give a, maybe just a, a little insight to the potency of the initiation. The spiritual potency of it. You wanted to talk okay. to that a little bit. Um, God is a good parent. And so what do good parents do? They obviously, they want to do everything possible to help their children, but good parents also realize that um, part of helping someone is leaving space for them to also make their effort. I was always really struck by that example of a, of a, sort of a very sad story of a man who saw a a, butterfly, a newly minted butterfly struggling to come out of the cocoon. And so this little butterfly was struggling and struggling. And so the man, in order to help it, took a little scissors and cut these sort of, you know, these cords that were holding the butterfly inside the cocoon. And what he discovered to his horror was that he'd actually crippled the butterfly because it's precisely in the act of struggling to get free from the cocoon that the butterfly develops the power to fly. And so he crippled that poor creature by not letting it, by not giving it space to become strong by making its own efforts. So it is of course a free decision by a soul to accept spiritual initiation, to vow, to follow certain principles. And it's actually in the act of working, sometimes struggling, to follow those principles that uh, a soul becomes strong. And so the purpose, the duty of the guru is not to uh, keep a disciple in a sort of an infantile state like don't think, I'll do the thinking for you, uh, you know, just ask me everything. That kind of uh, suffocating care, whether it's from a mother, a father, a guru, or or public leader, uh, doesn't really make people strong. So uh, that's the power. The power of the initiation is not only the blessings of the guru, it's, it's the power of the commitment of the disciple. It's, I mean, and when you make a promise, even when you make a pro- let's say just any promise, let's say you promise a friend that you'll do something and you keep your promise, that's very powerful. Integrity, honesty, honor, keeping your promises to other people, whether it's your own children or disciples or your neighbor, it it, it makes a person powerful. Integrity honesty, virtue, Uh, when people embrace it, it, it makes them powerful. It makes them powerful because that's the nature of the soul. The pure soul is perfect goodness. And so when we act virtuously, even just in the, you could say, the human moral sense or spiritually, when we act virtuously, we are exercising our eternal soul, We are exercising, we are reviving, awakening our eternal soul because it is the soul's nature to be perfectly virtuous. So, yeah, so that commitment, I think there's a lot of power that comes, not merely the guru like I sprinkle some pixie dust on the disciple, although I do have pixie dust, just kidding. It's not just that, it's not just some magical thing. It's it's the fact that the disciple is acting with integrity, with sincerity. And uh in the greater scheme of things, you get points for that. Actually, how did my thing go off here? Oh, my light came back on. If you like the program so far, you're you're really gonna love it now with the lights on. So we've had some technical problems here. So uh, any other question? No. Well, thank you again. Thank you all very much for participating. And uh, I guess we will proceed to the initiations. I guess we should make that announcement like in the airplanes, like if you don't really wanna fly to Chicago, this is your last chance to get off the plane. (laughs) So um, perhaps we'll we'll do ladies first. And uh, April. Hi Krishna. Where's April? Oh, there you are. Hey. Hi, Krishna. Hi. (laughs) I will also mention that um, in this initiation, uh, we also give a spiritual name. uh, Because actually, if you study world religions, uh, especially that dimension which you find in all the world religions, you could call it mysticism or spirituality, where people didn't just let's say kind of pay their religious taxes like they give it they give a little money or they they help out their religion and then they expect to get some kind of blessings it's sort of a barter system so there's a lot of that in every religion i mean it doesn't matter hinduism christianity judaism islam I mean, every big religion you find a lot of people are just kind of you know looking out for big number one in the sense of um you know, they feel if I say certain prayers, if I do certain things, give certain charity, I will benefit, I'll be saved from certain unpleasant possibilities. But you also find in in really in every world religion, I mean, a religion that's matured and developed enough to have a full range of human types, you find in all these world religions, uh, people who were much more serious, who really have Uh, or had a genuine devotion, a genuine interest in knowing God like that, um, that great song by George Harrison, uh, my sweet Lord, I really want to know you. I really want to go with you. And uh, I really want to see you. I really want to be with you. So yeah, he really, George really kind of nailed it there. And so that's, so you find in every religion World religion, there are people who are very serious about having spiritual experiences, experiencing God, and um, experiencing themselves as spiritual beings. So, um, so, uh, so the so therefore, the point I was making, I, I kind of get into that, but the point, I, I, the reason I brought that up is because the idea that when you take that spiritual initiation, it's like a new birth. It's like, you know, to use the somewhat, um, anyway, I don't want to say born again, because that's kind of, that language kind of has been taken, especially by a particular group, but but that's the idea that one has a new birth, that one has a new birth, that it's because the The experience of God, a genuine experience of God is so powerful. It's so powerful that, um, oh, smile, you're on candid Zoom. So uh, that that experience is so powerful that people do feel in many religions and throughout history that it's like a new life. It's sort of like the pre-God and post, you know, the, my life before I really discovered God and my life after this doesn't have to be fanatical or, uh, you know, you don't have to be a snake handler or anything, but, but it, um, it is a very powerful experience and God being merciful has uh, you know, people in many different traditions have experienced God because, you know, it doesn't matter what country you're in or what the name of your religion is. If you're sincerely trying to understand God, I mean, why wouldn't God reciprocate with you unless he's like incredibly obnoxious? But but if God, let's say, if God is at least a nice person, then why wouldn't God reciprocate in different ways with sincere people throughout history around the world who are sincerely trying to understand God? That's what you'd expect a nice person to do. And and so therefore, you find all around the world this um, this inspiration that somehow discovering the reality of God or Krishna. I mean, it's such a powerful experience that people really do feel like like it's a new life, and 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 so they often take a spiritual name, which doesn't mean they abandon their old name. Uh, because we should always be grateful to our parents who named us. But it's an additional name which indicates the power of, of a life with God and how new and important that is. So hence the uh, the giving of an additional name. I, I say additional name because I remember in Prabhupada, I think maybe it was the one of his first books that he published, perhaps a Krishna book. He as authors generally do, he, there was a section where he thanked all of the people who helped him to publish the book. And, of course, most of them were his own disciples. And so he thanked them in their legal name. And he also mentioned their spiritual name. So Prabhupada did not think that the spiritual name obliterates your family name. It just gives a spiritual dimension to your life. So that I, I wanted to clarify that also. So, good old April. <laughs> Just... Where's Polica? <laughs> minhas reverências. Oi, Paulica, como vai? Tudo bem, Letcher Adeva, minhas reverências. Você não vai ficar chocado quando você vê o preço da iniciação? No, no, no. A gente paga. Não tem problema. (laughs) Eu mando cheque pelo correio. Não se preocupe. (laughs) So, so April, the word devotee, I should mention, the word devotee comes from the Latin devoto. And it means voto in Latin actually comes from Sanskrit vrata, which means vow. Even the word devotee comes from Sanskrit And so, um, and in Latin languages, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, they still say devoto. So voto, vow, like we say in English, a votary, or to vote for someone, to vow to someone. And so uh, all related words. So a devoto or a devotee in the English version means someone who's living by a vow. For example, let's say someone is devoted. Devoted to their family. It means that their vow is to serve their family, serve the family. So to, to to or the English word avowed, to be avowed to something, to vow, it means you you dedicate yourself to something, hence to the word devote, to devote yourself to something, to vow, to take care of something. Anyway, enough etymology. It's well, about uh, probably as much as anyone can stand right now, so, so April, what is your vow? Okay, here we go. <laughs> My vows are to uh, not eat or consume any meat, fish, or eggs; to not take any intoxicants; to not gamble; to not have any illicit sex or sex outside the marriage. And I hereby solemnly swear to chant my 16 rounds of Hare Krishna every day and be devoted to my dear spiritual master and perform some good service in this life, if at all possible. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Thank you. you. By the way, you got all the answers right. So... Uh, those four principles we follow they are actually ethical principles they're they're you know we are careful, maybe the devil don't interfere, <laughs> don't interfere. No, I was just kidding so uh, <laughs> um don't answer. yeah yeah, those are actually ethical principles which i mean and, and actually modern science, social science confirms the uh <laughs> the great desirability of following those principles so uh your name spiritual name is um from april priya hita priya means very dear beloved and hita means someone who's dedicated to the good of others Krishna. Devi Dasi. Oh. so um Devi Dasi. Oh. <laughs> Hare Krishna Hey Rama. That's her son Rama. Thanks for thanks for coming to the program, Rama. You're welcome. You so little- <laughs> next next victim. Um Vincent Charlie Dave. Oh, well, there you are. Maybe you can introduce all the members of your family that are here. Um, okay, let me change my view. So, my mother is Judy Fox, and uh, you've met my wife and daughter, Vivian and Amy. Hey. And my, my kid sister Olivia. She's hey Olivia. Not, she's there in North Carolina. Oh really? Where where are you? She's in Asheville. Asheville. I'm in uh, Chapel Hill. Um, family. I think and your mother the- is your mother. Up here? Is your mother on the? Yes. Um, she was. Where is she? Oh yes, Judy Fox. That's my mother. Thank you for coming, and your beautiful daughter. Yes. We had a great, K hey, Amy, we have to have another conversation. Yeah, definitely. I am up for it. Okay, we're going to get together. Very, yeah, very intelligent young lady. So, so those are your, your family members that are here? Yes. So thank you all for coming. And uh, so... Your vow. My vow is to abstain from meat, intoxicants, illicit sex and gambling, and to chant 16 rounds of the Maha Mantra every day. Very good. It's a deal. So, uh, your name in Sanskrit means uh, the very greatest of all. And of course, ultimately that refers to Krishna, God. And in Sanskrit, that is varista. Varista means, it comes from the Sanskrit word vara, which means excellent. And then in the superlative, actually little linguistic note, if you can uh, bear it. In English, we make the superlative degree of something by adding st, like finest, uh, greatest, prettiest, richest, so that ST, which makes the superlative degree is, of course, from Sanskrit, which does it. So varista, the ST, varista means the very greatest. And so you are varista das, which means that you will be serving the very greatest of all persons. Um, can I ask you to spell that, please? You certainly can. In fact, actually, I'll put them all in chat for just a, a slight additional fee. <laughs> Great. I actually, What I'm going to do is first Derek and then after I've done, because, well, actually, okay, let me put the first two there. I won't. uh, I'll put the names in chat for everybody. And then Derek, and then I will uh, put his name there. Let's see. There. The uh, the dot under the S in Varista means it's pronounced like SH, and the dot under the T simply means that the dental T sound is assimilated into the S sound. Anyway, we won't get into the phonetics of it, but it's Varista. That's how it's pronounced. Varista. So, congratulations, and Varista uh, So, um, last but not least. We have Derek. Shilacharadev. Accept my obeisances. Hare Krishna. So Derek is... is Oh. Oh, Well, actually, then you can turn off your microphone unless you're actually speaking. So, uh, because when I speak it doesn't seem to work so is anyone any of your friends or family here maybe good you or you're in, you're in the temple las vegas temple yeah the las vegas Iscon kind of temple i have uh, a lot of friends that showed up oh and, uh, and then i have my mother here oh and, aren't you uh, and my and my in-laws as well oh thank you all for coming uh we appreciate your presence here And uh, I'd like to thank also the Las Vegas Center for hosting you here. So uh, your vow, which is not going to be very different than the other two. Shulicharideva, I'm making the vow to um, abstain from meat eating, gambling, intoxication, and illicit sex. And the pro-vow is that I vow to chant 16 rounds of the Maha Mantra every day. Thank you very much. So, uh, your name will be um, Danesha. Dana means giving. From the word Dana, of course, in Spanish and all the Spanish, and Portuguese, uh, dar. And we have the English word donation from Sanskrit dana. So, and Isha means the Lord, it means the most generous person in the universe, who is Krishna. And so, if we actually understand whom we are serving, then we should also be very generous and kind to others and help others. So, that's, and I'll put your name in the chat. You may be amazed by my technical abilities that I can actually copy and paste. It's, you know, it comes with the position. So there it is. Thank you, Sheila. So my my sincere thanks to the three initiates and to all their family and friends and, and devotional colleagues. For all helping, encouraging them, and uh, so so, my sincere thanks to all of you. So, unless there is another question, uh, Krishna Shakti, where's Krishna Shakti? There you are. Want to also thank Krishna Shakti for. Uh, working very devotedly to help these three people advance on their spiritual path. Uh, uh, she is just tirelessly um, devoted herself to helping them, preparing them for this initiation. So uh, thank you all. and uh, hope, we'll be, hope we'll see you guys again soon. And thanks, especially to the families of the initiates, and uh, I guess it's over and out for now. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.